And we're live on the Virtual Real Estate Investing Podcast. How are we doing, Frank? Hair on fire. Uh, busy, busy day. And a lot to talk about. Um, markets moving underneath our feet in real estate for, I would argue, every asset class right now. So lots to talk about. What, what are we chatting about today? First off, I want to comment you on your microphone because you sound really good. Um, and I'm just going to spill the beans because I think it's funny. Frank got a brand new mic, but it hasn't been plugged in for uh, we don't know how long. So I got <laughs> it's amazing this, yeah. how good a mic is when you plug it in. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, no, I think I, I, I've i had this mic for a couple of months. And I think my Zoom was automatically set up to like just read this mic and it would work. And something happened in the last couple episodes where it wasn't connecting properly. So I think my audio was good. And then it got shitty. And I didn't realize it fast enough. And here we are. Anyway, not really good podcast production on my part. So apologize to anyone who's listening. Better and, now though. Uh, better now. It's much better now. And I can't say much because we had to cancel recording yesterday because I couldn't get my Zoom to work. And now I'm on my backup mic. So I'm just as ate up uh, as you. But here we are. Boy, oh boy. So we'll just start with, we got quoted 7% debt the other day, right? We, yeah. um, you know, I, I think we were four and a quarter or so, maybe high fours to start the year. Right now, people are at 7% with prepayment penalties. So it's like you're stuck at 7% for like three to five years. And I think, I don't want to say that rocked our world because that would be a little too much. Like we know, we knew we were heading in that direction, but it was like clear proof, like deals are not going to work with current seller sentiment at those rates. So we had to go, what the hell are we going to do? Yeah, I'll get into like how, how it all went down. But um, someone, Redwood Ryan on Twitter posted the spread right now between cap rates and just rates in general. And they actually are, since they've been recording this, the tightest they've ever been. So like if the average mortgage rate right now for a commercial real estate deal is six and a half percent, I think cap rates are at 6% or 6.5%. Like they are literally almost even. Um, so there's, there's very little spread. So that's it's tough. But uh, I wanted to clarify your point. Our first loan this year was at 4.25% interest. You're correct. And um, we, we've we been working this loan that we're working on for a month. And we started out and we had quotes at 6%. We had one at 5.98 um, when we started getting quotes back from lenders. And then we picked one. Then that lender was like, hey, I'm going to increase it by about 50 bips. And honestly, I'm not that interested in this loan. I want to close up till the end of the year. So they, they kind of gave us the feeling that they might not close. Um, so there was no surety of outcome. And then the best thing we got was 7% with really high prepayment penalties. Uh, kind of kicked our butt. So what are we going to do? <laughs> what, do what do you do? When, when you're like 100 bips off on what you projected when you put the deal under contract, what do you do? Okay, so we won't talk about our specific deal because we're still in the middle of it, but let's start, let's just talk in general terms, right? You, you, In a perfect world, you're getting such a tremendous deal that if interest rates, if your interest rate goes up by a point, you're fine, right? Um, bottom line is deals have been hard to come by. So I think very few... GPs out there would be able to handle a 1% interest rate uh, increase, right? So you got to go, hey, what's, you know, what's going to happen? Do, do I make mess, less money? Do the LPs make more less money? Do we retrade price? 
Um, you know, all that stuff is, is on the table. Um, and if you're in a knife fight, you, you got to look at that. Right. But I think what we looked at is, okay, there's this deal, but then there is, Hey, what if interest rates go seven to eight to nine to 10 to 12 to 15? What, what do you do? Mm-hmm. Right. And ultimately I think you have to figure out how to do deals without bank debt. Right. And the kind of the, the two ways we can do that is taking stuff down all cash or taking stuff down with seller financing. Yeah. And there, you know, there's pros and cons to each approach. I think with cash, um, it's less tax efficient. Um, I'm not going to get too into details, but there's, there's some tax, uh, like when you do cost segregations and bonus depreciation, having more cash in the deal makes it less effective. Um, anyway, so that's one part of it. The other part is you don't get to deduct interest expenses. So from a tax perspective, going cash is not great um, from an efficiency perspective. And I've gotten that feedback a couple of times from investors since I I speak to them about strategy and what we're going to do. But the thing that you don't get to measure, that's really, really difficult to measure when you do cash deals is like how much lower of a price can you get, you know, just by offering cash. And no one... On a given deal, no one knows the answer to that question, but it is there's a number out there. It's not zero, you know. So I uh I don't know. Like um, I think you're right. I think it's cash and seller financing. I guess I'm thinking um, like what's the primary, what's the secondary? Because eventually you got to submit an offer with the letter of intent, and it's gonna have an option A and option B. And uh, you have to you really want to pick one as a primary, right? W- which one's better? Like what what what's the primary strategy? Well, I think what we're talking about, um, the, the sexy way to say it in real estate private equity is capital stack. What is your capital stack? And it can be confusing, right? But ultimately what people are saying is, how are you going to pay for this asset? And traditionally, it's made up of debt and equity. Debt is a note that usually comes from a bank. And equity is, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, a partner that is going to give you... put. Uh, that money, but they want to share in the upside and the downside, right? Mm -hmm. So you have debt and you have equity. And traditionally, we've said, hey, we want to be 70% bank debt and 30% LP or limited partner equity, right? So then we go, okay, we could go 100% limited partner equity, or we could do seller financing, right? So if you're asking me, what my ideal scenario is, the ideal scenario is as much debt as the property can handle, right? Um, If we could get 100% seller financing on every one of our deals and our debt service coverage ratio is solid, we would do it, right? Like, what do I mean by that? If our debt was at a lower interest rate than seller uh, or than investor expectations for returns, um, then we should arbitrage that all day into you know, the greatest extent possible. Some people are like, hey, you can't go over 60% leverage, 70% leverage. And I think a better way to look at it is, I don't, I'm not worried about that number, what percent of debt we have. I'm more worried about the debt service coverage ratio, right? So if we you know, maybe we take 120% LTV, we get over the purchase price. But if we're buying it at a low enough number that the debt service coverage ratio is still rocking, I'd love to do that deal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've had deals where we paid market value 
and we had principal only payments that had a debt service coverage ratio of 1.4, you know, like you're going to de-risk that deal really quickly <laughs> like if you could set it up correctly. So I, I agree hundred um, percent. So let's, let's talk about our strategy. Like is uh, we, we haven't made a decision yet, but are we done even trying to get debt from a bank? Are we done? Like when we submit an offer, does it even have a financed option in it besides seller finance? Well, I think if we submit an offer today, it does not have a bank option, right? Like today, the tricky part about right now, and for the seven people that listen to this continue, like consistently, we appreciate you and know that we're talking about macroeconomics a lot, but from our seat, you just realize like, it's so important right now, right? Like, you know, national or international, like seller expectations, buyer expectations, investor expectations, like all this stuff is, uh, is, is so important. Right. But I think as we speak today, like the debt's likely not going to work. And some people might be like, well, you got to find a better deal where the debt could work. Sure. Right. Like if we sat on the sidelines for six months, you know, interest rates will probably come down and, or stabilize and it'll work. Right. So some people, if they want to take six months off, they, they should do that. Right. But I also think there's going to be investors out there that don't want to take six months off, not even just us. I think we have investors that are going to want to continue to do deals over the six months, even in a changing environment. So can we find deals that those investors like over the next six months? Yeah, I I think we can. And I think priority number one will be seller finance options, um, aggressive seller finance options, then maybe to moderate seller ex, uh, finance expectations, where it's seventy percent LTV with a five percent, um, you know, five percent amortizing loan, kind of like what we were getting early in twenty twenty two, right? Mm-hmm. Like I would say that's next, and I think if that doesn't work, the big leap that we're making is instead of going bank debt, we're going to look at taking things down with a hundred percent equity, right, or a combination of our money and LP money. That's, I mean, that, that's a big change to our strategy, but I think we're saying that, you know, I think we're both kind of bearish on the next six months. So let's say we do, you know, three or four deals over the next six months. I think half of them could be all equity and half of them could be seller finance. Yeah. I think that's reasonable. I think we're getting to the point where it's just the amount of leverage, you, you know, back a year ago, every 5% of leverage you increase in the deal, right? It affected the IRR significantly. Now it's like you could, it doesn't really affect the returns that much. Is the juice worth the squeeze? The other thing that's also happening that I don't think the average person is aware of unless you're active in real estate is lenders are dropping deals a lot. Like it, every, any deal has lender risk. Like the appraisal can come back bad. The lender could drop out you know, at a certain point within 30 days of closing. It's possible, right? But now it's happening at a much higher clip lenders are under a lot of pressure too. They got, they got to keep doing business, but the rates that they're borrowing at are increasing underneath their feet as well. You know, last, last month's CPI data was bad. So now lenders are even more scared going into 2023. So like you're, it's not juicing the returns that much. And then you have the risk as a sponsor of like, Hey, I'm 20 days before closing. And the lender's like, Hey, I got to increase this uh, another 25 bips or 50 bips or else I'm out. And you know, then what do you got to do? You got to disclose that to your investors and you just get caught in this like hamster wheel. Um, and I, I just don't like that either, honestly. Um, so I, I just, the risk reward ain't there or isn't there. And uh, it's just, it's not penciling, to be honest. 
For sure, right? Did we did we just make a decision? Or did we just change our business? Live? Um, I don't think so. <laughs> um, I think I, I think I've said this, and I'll you know, sorry if I'm not super concise right now, but it, it is a very changing environment. But I I think the more I learn, the more I realize real estate, private equity, or whatever it is we're doing, syndication, whatever you want to call it, right? Being a real estate entrepreneur um, is number one is like finding inefficiencies or finding margin, finding opportunities, um, you know, like finding the opportunity. That's a big part of it, right? And like we found storage, we feel like it's, it's, there's inefficiencies there and, and we can fix it, right? Like that, well, let's call that half of it, right? And the other half is the capital stack and understanding how to create the capital stack that works for each deal. And I look at it like it's our job as real estate professionals to come up with the best capital stack we can. And I'm sure there's a bunch of people out there that are like, this is how we do deals. And if we can't do deals like this, we're not going to do deals. And I think that's fine, right? I, I think the way we look at it is like at one end of the spectrum, if we can go 120% bank debt and the DSCR works, great. If we can go 100% equity and the bank debt works, great. If we can you know, do anything in between, we're going to try to make it work, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I, I don't look at it like, hey, we're changing our business as much as like the conditions we're seeing right now is saying, hey, seller finance is going to be a really good option and taking things down cash is going to be a really good option. Yeah. Yeah. We forgot to mention this earlier, but um, I posted this the other day. This this has happened before, right? Like 19, late 1970s, early to mid 1980s, in the United States, we had double digit interest rates topping out at around 18% as the average mortgage rate for a single family house in 1981. And at that point in time, 40% of homes that were sold were seller financed, according to the National Association of Realtors. So and, and that's interesting, right? Like that's 40% of transactions. And most people don't want to get into the deal making when they sell and buy their house. Like most people don't want to do that. It's much more comfortable and easy for the average person to agree upon a price, get a bank to lend the money, seller just gets the money and it's over. Like that's very clean. That appeals to 95% of the population. So most of that 40%, like those people were probably reluctant to go down that path. They would not choose that path unless they're forced to. And we still got all the way up to 40% of sellers giving their house out, giving their house away for seller financing or holding a note. So, you know, I don't think what we're saying is revolutionary or unprecedented. I think my thought is, like my curiosity is at what rate does, do, do we get like a really massive increase in seller financed transactions and all cash? You know, like at what point, at what rate does it make up the majority of commercial real estate transactions? Um, and I don't know the answer to that. I've never seen a study on it, but it's an interesting question. It is, right? I think uh, right now, so many people have made so much money over the last couple of years. I feel like there's going to be a lot of people that are willing to sit on the sidelines for a period of time, mm-hmm. right? And I think what causes people to sell on seller financing or some type of terms is some distress. And I think there's plenty of people right now that are starting to feel distress in their bank account, but I don't think many people are feeling real estate distressed yet where 
you know, time will tell, but if it goes another six months, you will start having distress in the market, whether that is dropped occupancy, dropped rates, or just balloon notes being due. So then you'll start, start seeing it more and more, but I, I think it's inevitable. I, I would say the, uh, you know, seller financing isn't hard, right? It's like, Hey, replace the word bank with seller and you, you understand it. Right. Mm-hmm. But I do think we have somewhat of a competitive advantage because we've had a lot of these conversations. Um, and you can be a little bit of a magician to put these together, meaning you have the price, you have the down payment percentage, and then you also have those payments. And within those payments, you can be as creative as, as you can yeah. imagine. Right. We've done offers where for the whole first year, it's 10,000 bucks a month for the second year, it's 20,000 bucks a month, or maybe it was annual, right? Or third year's 30 grand, whatever. Um, you can go principal only, you can go, you know, interest only, you can make them look just like a, a bank. You can, you can do anything with them. Right. Um, which if you aren't used to seeing that, I think it can be a little confusing, but if you have a good grasp on it, you can see how all those things start to fit together. And generally, you know, if we can give sellers, an offer that has, hey, you can accept this one, this one, or this one. I think that's going to put us over a lot of other buyers where a lot of other buyers, I think their seller finance offers, um, they're not going to be in as confident in how to construct those offers. Therefore, they're going to probably give them one and it's going to be a bank that's going to look just like bank debt. I agree. I think, you know, there's a lot of people that have never done it before and it's because there's like some ambiguity because there's so many levers to pull like that'll scare people away. I also think it's still hard to get these deals done because you still need a rational, you need a rational person on both sides of the transaction to really make these work. And not hundred percent of people are not rational. So like an example is um, you come to a price agreement with a seller and you're like, Hey, price is important to you. Maybe duration of the loan is important to them too, but Hey, I need to cash flow monthly. So you know, interest is is important to me, right? And we just had this happen with another negotiation we've been doing, where um, we're like, "Hey, you this these two terms are important to you, but this one's important to me. Here's my offer." And then they agree upon the terms that they wanted. Like, okay, cool. Then a week later, it's like, actually, the thing I told you you could win on, like, I actually want that to move in my direction too. And that pretty much kills every single seller finance transaction because now, <laughs> like, that's like kind of negotiating in bad faith. You know, and like once that happens, 90% of the time that deal's over, right? So, like, that gives kind of like a they're great deals, but that makes like the margin for error from a negotiation perspective kind of thin. Like, it makes it pretty thin. And you could do a great job. You're the acquisitions guy. You could do a great job, and the seller could still blow that up, and then trust is gone, right? So, it'll never be the predominant tool or method of doing transactions, mostly because I think. There's a lot of people that cannot handle doing it, to be honest. Absolutely. And then, although we're doing off-market acquisitions, we're still talking to brokers on a daily basis. So there's a lot of brokers out there that don't understand seller financing that well. So you have two options. You can you can submit an offer they don't really understand. You can try to explain it to them. But the brokers that I have good relationships with, like I'm basically trying to teach them our playbook. <laughs> Right? Yeah. I'm trying to teach them like, this is how it can work. This is how I would talk to the seller. This is how I would pull this information. This is exact words I would use. When the brokers I have good relationships with, 
like they do it and it works, right? Like we're getting results and they come back with like, okay, we're closer, right? <laughs> like kind of yeah. coaching them through it. Um, but I, I tell them like, Hey, let, you know, I'm not trying to cut you out of the deal. Like I'm trying to empower you. Like, let's get this deal done. Right. And not only is that helping for that specific deal, but then I plant a seed with them. So when they talk to other buyers and they're like, Hey, this probably isn't going to fit, but Hey, I remember I talked to John about seller finance. I know a guy that might be able to help you in this situation. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, I mean, it's, it's interesting. Like there's an argument we could make for our, even as sellers, right? We own assets, right? Like, let's say someone offered us and like, Oh, you know, we've got a really attractive offer on a property. Um, but it was seller financed and we had to hold the note on like yesterday's rates. It might make sense. You know, like there, there's situations where I'm looking at it and I'm like, Hey, like from a tax perspective, efficient, right? If you're able to get a down payment um, that clears your mortgage, that can return all the capital for your investors and you get some cash flow on the back end, it feels kind of like a successful cash out refi, you know? So I feel like um, there's like this feeling like uh, when someone sells on seller finance, the seller's like losing, you know, like they kind of lost, like or they weren't able to time the market and they missed. And I'm like, maybe it might be true, but honestly, it's a good defensive strategy on the sell side. Like I think your your IRR will be higher in today's environment selling on seller finance than trying to go conventional. And your chances of closing from the time you pass the due diligence date, I think is much higher. But so. we can also say right now, you have virtually 0% chance of closing a deal right now. Right? <laughs> yeah. Like with, with debt, right? Like if you try to use debt, like it's not going to work. There's just lend, lenders, you know, lenders, investors all over the place are dropping out, right? So like... <laughs> The bottom line is if you want to close a deal right now, it's probably your only option. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know anyone that's actually closed a deal with 7% interest this month? No. I don't either. <laughs> I know a lot of people that uh all the brokers I talk to, they'll, you know, they're like, it's bad. Like it's really bad. <laughs> yeah. Like sellers, you know, are sacrificing due diligence or um earnest money and falling out left and right. They're like, it's bad. B-A-D bad. Like, um, uh, Dude, I spoke to a loan broker uh, this week who was like, yeah, this, it doesn't make sense. Like his own product. <laughs> it's his own product. He's like, yeah, most of the time it doesn't make sense. Because if the, deal's, if the deal's amazing and you want to have that leverage for yourself, you know, you take the deal down yourself and you're, you found it off market, you got a steep discount. He's like, yeah, you know, do it. But he's like on most 90% of deals, he's like, it's going to kill the deal. I'm like, Yep. Fair enough. Yeah. So one, one thing let's, I feel like this episode is kind of a downer. Hopefully it wasn't the, it's like, Hey, the economy's hurting. You know, I think we have a way to keep doing deals for those that want to continue to participate seller finance and um, taking things down cash. But this is what I, I would leave listeners with. And then you can have a final word, Frank is this idea of like interest rates are confusing. The feds can, uh, you know, confusing inflations, confusing. This is, this is what I look at it. Like uh, we need in real estate, especially in storage, we need people to move. People don't move unless houses are being bought and sold. Right. So the economy is going to continue to suck for us until people are able to move and buy and sell houses. And people aren't buying and selling houses until interest rates go down or stabilize. I think we can be good at six or 7%, but it has to stay at six or 7% because no one wants to feel like a chump, you know, like mm -hmm. no one wants to lock in an interest rate at 7% and then it's going to go down to five. 
you know, next, next March. Right. So we need things to, to stabilize. So people will buy and sell houses, um, and move. And, you know, as soon as we hit that, like, I, I, I think we're good to go. I think our economy can handle higher interest rates, uh, but they got to stabilize or go down. Yeah, I agree hundred percent. And in reality, like, um, well, listen, when, when capital is not abundant, deals become more abundant. Like we, even the deals we're looking at right now, we're turning them away, but some of the pricing per square foot and the other stuff we're seeing, we're seeing some evidence that pricing is coming down. So like, I, I am bullish that opportunities are coming. It's just, they're coming a little slower than I think we would all like. Cause you know, there's sellers that have good debt and they're like, ah, debt will come back down. Like rates will come back down and I'll be able to sell at a higher price next year. A lot of people in that situation. Right. So but in the short term, people that are willing to sell are motivated. We, we're going to get better prices this year, right? So if you were bullish on storage or multifamily or your asset class last year, and then you're like, oh, I'm, I'm not bullish on it anymore in 2022 or the end of 2022, like I would, that's a little recency bias. Like we're still, prices are coming down a little bit. So if you like the prices in 21, you probably should like them in 22. Um, so that, that's the optimistic note I'll, I'll close my thoughts with. I agree. I think we look at prices today compared to where they're going to be in five years. I still believe in America. I still believe in our economy. I think we would buy everything we could over the next five years. It'd be hard to prove it out on an Excel spreadsheet, but I think almost everything is still a good buy. Yeah. I mean, the economy is forcing us to buy deals that can stabilize over a 10 cap. That's that's where that's basically what our underwriting is taking us to. Are we going to be happy in five years if we hit those goals on an operations perspective? And we have 10 storage facilities operating at 10 caps. I, everyone listening better hope we're fucking successful because if not, then we're in America's in serious trouble, right? Like if we can't win with that type of portfolio, then everyone else is in deep shit too. So we'll, I think this might be, it might be good for us in the long term. We'll see. For sure. Okay. Good stuff, man. I'm John Plum said uh, on Twitter and Frank is Frank Scap with two P's. Thanks for listening.